my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello, party people. You're listening to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I talk about six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. I'm your host, Josh Baker, and this week we have demonic possessions, workplace grievances, and uncomfortable captives but mostly demonic possessions. I didn't plan on 50% of the films having people possessed by demons, but sometimes evil falls right into your body. Now let's become vessels that demons may or may not inhabit together. Number 1, House on Willow Street, 2016, directed by Alistair Orr. A woman named Hazel gathers up a team of hooligans, James, Aid, and Mark, to kidnap a girl named Catherine from the house on Willow Street. The gang's plan is to ransom Catherine for some diamonds her family has. The gang kidnaps Catherine without issue. When they try to contact her parents for the ransom, they get no answer. James and Aid go back to the house. They find a bunch of dead bodies which include Catherine's parents and some priests. Everyone starts seeing ghosts of people they've lost. It's revealed that Catherine is possessed by a demon. Everything goes to hell. James and Mark end up possessed. Aid buys Hazel time to escape, then kills himself. Hazel's ghost mom takes down possessed James and Mark. And Hazel burns possessed Catherine to death, which allegedly ends everything. Hazel then hears police sirens, which cause her to run off into the forest. Aid and people possessed by a demon are the killers. I don't normally watch really bad horror movies with no redeeming qualities, but when I do, it's because I was really tired when choosing it. Honestly, I thought this was House of the Devil, which I'll be covering a little bit later. I knew I was watching the wrong movie pretty quickly, but against my better judgment, I decided to stick with House on Willow Street, since sometimes you need to watch bad, bad horror movies for your podcast. The acting in this is absolutely abysmal, as you'd expect. Everyone's delivery is flatter than that dude named Stanley you take pictures of in interesting places, like South Africa. This movie was made in South Africa. Charlie Theron is from there, and she can act. So I'm not sure what happened here. To be fair, the writing is horrendous. It's like whoever wrote the dialogue has only seen old heist movies and has never actually talked to a real person. I haven't seen kidnappers end up in such a dilemma since Baby's Day Out. Luckily for the House on Willow Street gang, they didn't have to deal with a gorilla. They only have to deal with an evil demon that preys on people that are grieving. The whole gang is grieving something? Oh jeez, that's unfortunate for them and convenient for Mr. Demon. There is some decent looking gore makeup in this. Aid's dead brother shows up wearing tidy whities with some nice shards of glass sticking out of his skin. 
The carvings in the possessed people's skin look nifty. The toasty ghost of Hazel's mom looks pretty crispy and burnt. The burnt mom ghost reminded me heavily of the 13 Ghosts remake. Actually, a lot of the ghosts reminded me of characters from that movie. Aid's brother looks like the dire son. Hazel's mom looks like the withered lover. Well, maybe those are the only similarities, but still. The other main ghost is of Mark's daughter. We only see her briefly. She has her back turned to the camera and is soaking wet. She then turns around to reveal a messed up practical slash CGI face that actually looks kind of creepy. That scene was by far the scariest thing in the movie, and it was just mildly unsettling. This movie ends up using a lot of CGI. Where is the majority of this CGI used, you might be asking? Tongues. Well, you see, people get possessed by a demon after getting a juicy tongue kiss from either a ghost or someone that is already possessed. The one ghost I haven't mentioned was James's mom. She's only shown briefly, but in her short time on screen, she has an intimate tongue kiss with her son. She shoves her freakish spined CGI tongue right down his throat. Even though all the tongues in the movie are CGI, they end up being neat looking due to the spines that poke out of them. There are no standout kills in the movie. Demon-possessed Catherine uses telekinesis to kill her parents and the priests with flying tools, but it's not very interesting. It's actually kind of lame. Demon Catherine is basically Neo. In one scene, she stops bullets in mid-air, then sends them back to the shooter. She also blocks shotgun shots with a telekinetic force field. Speaking of guns, whenever someone points a gun at another character, they cock the gun. Every time. I think I'd have my guns ready to go in the event that I may have to shoot at a demonic entity, but to each their own, I suppose. One sequence that's kind of fun centers on a picture of Catherine on the wall. The picture keeps changing poses whenever someone looks away from it. Maybe that was supposed to come off as creepy, but all it did was remind me of Harry Potter's moving pictures and the Madonna song Vogue. This movie is not worth your time. It's bad bad. Number 2, The Belko Experiment, 2016, directed by Greg McLean. An office building in Columbia is locked down. Employees are then instructed to kill two people within a time frame, or something bad will happen. Two people aren't killed, so four die due to head explosions, since everyone got a tracker slash explosive device implanted in their heads upon being hired. The intercom then says to kill 30 people, or 60 will die. The boss man, Barry Norris, gathers a crew of like-minded individuals and begins rounding up all the employees after breaking into the armory for some sweet guns. Barry starts choosing who should live or die and begins killing people. Shenanigans occur, so 30 people aren't killed in time. After 60 more people's heads explode, the intercom lets the remaining people know that the person with the most kills gets to live. This leads to Barry Norris... Wendell Dukes, Antonio Fowler, and Vince Agostino actively trying to kill people. Other people started killing too, but in self-defense. Eventually, everyone but Barry and Mike, the goody-good protagonist who I haven't talked about yet, who was against killing from the get-go, are left. Mike kills Barry, thus winning the battle royale. He then meets the intercom operator. Mike kills the operator and his guards. Then we cut to a bunch of monitors 
with all the winners of different Belco Battle Royales, and a voice says, Commence Stage 2. Barry Norris, Wendell Dukes, Antonio Fowler, Vince Agostino, Alonzo Lonnie Crane, and the Belco Intercom Operator are the killers. I'm not counting Mike and a bunch of others since they killed out of self-defense. I could maybe count Mike for killing the Operator and his guards, but that seemed justified enough. Also, who the hell is Lonnie, you might be asking. He's a character that gets paranoid, kills his friend, and then dies an accidental death right after that. I came into the movie thinking it was going to be the Japanese movie Battle Royale in an office building. That is not what this movie is at all. It's more of a crazy, unethical psychology experiment movie. What do people do when they have to kill to survive? I don't think the Belko experiment really answers that question, but it's still an enjoyable watch. Would I have preferred Battle Royale in an office building? I mean, yeah, but more of a slow burn story with a ton of tension between characters with different ideologies isn't terrible. This was written and produced by James Gunn, who wrote and directed Slither. He also directed and participated in writing the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Greg Henry, who plays the intercom operator, Michael Rooker, who plays a maintenance worker, and Sean Gunn, who plays a janitor and is James's younger brother, were all in Guardians of the Galaxy. This movie has a lot of biggish names. Besides the Guardians folk, you have John Gallagher Jr., who plays Mike. He was in Hush and 10 Cloverfield Lane. Fun fact about him, he also played Johnny in Green Day's Broadway musical, American Idiot. We also have Tony Goldwyn as the boss man. He was the voice of Tarzan, you know, the Phil Collins version. Josh Brenner plays a fun nerd as usual. He's big head in Silicon Valley. Last person I'm going to bring up is John C. McGinley, who plays Wendell. He's been in a ridiculous amount of things and might be best known for playing Perry Cox in Scrubs. It should go without saying, the acting in this is solid. Sure, there are some flubs like Sean Gunn, but hey, sometimes you have to cast the writer-producer's brother. The gore that is shown up close is gross and fantastically done. Standouts are the exploded head examination, fire axe kill, and tape dispenser bludgeoning. These deaths aren't incredibly exciting or unique, but the gore was done well enough. The best deaths are when Barry twists a girl's head around since he can't waste bullets, and when an elevator ends up crushing a guy as it goes to the top floor. For the most part, the sound design is great. Nothing stood out as odd until a scene where Wendell is killing people with a cleaver. The sounds added in for its slashes are ridiculous. There's one character that you follow throughout the film that's the new girl. It's her first day, and she has to deal with all this crap. She makes it really far only to get a cheap death. She survives being attacked, stays hidden, does some crazy acrobatics in elevator shafts, and then, when she's finally back in control, she gets shot in the head by Barry. I was really rooting for you, new girl. You should have at least been given a better send-off. The Belko Experiment is a fun film with a ton of workplace death. If that sounds up your alley, I recommend checking it out. Number 3, The Perfect Host, 2010, directed by Nick Tumney. An ex-con named John helps rob a bank. It isn't the smoothest robbery, and the police are onto him. 
He lies his way into a guy named Warwick's house by pretending to know a girl named Julia that sent Warwick a postcard. John freaks out when he hears on the radio that his girlfriend that helped him with the bank heist double-crossed him. This causes John to tell Warwick he'll kill him if he doesn't follow his orders. Unfortunately for John, the terrible jerk, Warwick had drugged John's wine. John passes out. When he comes to, it's revealed that Warwick is bananas. Warwick sees a ton of people that don't exist, including Julia. Warwick makes John think he's going to be killed, but only applies makeup to John that makes it look like he's been hurting him. Warwick then allows John to leave in the morning. It's revealed that Warwick is a police lieutenant. John catches his now ex-girlfriend and takes her getaway car and the money. Warwick then pops up and steals most of the money from John, leaving enough for him to get out of the country. Sometime later, one of Warwick's detectives receives a picture of Warwick hanging out with John in the mail. The detective confronts Warwick, who invites the detective over for dinner. Warwick might be the killer. It seems that he hasn't killed any of his victims in the past, but who knows? He'll have to kill the detective to keep his secret at least. This movie didn't really end up feeling like something in the horror genre. Oops. My memory of the Perfect Host trailer that I saw 8 years ago told me it was a horror movie. I mean, I guess it kind of is. The situation John finds himself in is horrifying, and I've never been some insufferable purist that doesn't count anything labeled as a thriller, a horror movie, like those jackasses that are very vocal about Get Out not being horror. That being said, it is very light on horror elements. Now that worrying about the genre is out of the way, this movie is absolutely bonkers bananas. I knew that Niles Crane, I mean David Hyde Pierce, was going to turn the tides on the intruder, but I had no idea how insane his character Warwick was actually going to be. Like, see a whole house filled of partygoers that no one else can see insane. The movie is carried on David Hyde Pierce's back. He is the best part of the entire thing. His acting is great, hammy, and nuanced. Clayne Crawford, who plays John, isn't bad either. Whenever I saw him on screen, all I could think about is how he looks like a young Michael Madsen, or an older version of that dude from the Girl Next Door movie. The fun comedy one, not the poor girl is horribly, horribly tortured one. That movie is disturbing and not enjoyable at all. What was I talking about? Oh yeah, the acting in The Perfect Host. Besides David and Klain, everyone else's acting is terrible. Well, the people that Warwick makes up aren't poorly acted, but all the real people are. There are two detectives that are especially bad. The dialogue they were given is the most over-the-top, where cops lines, and their delivery is brutal. This makes all the cop scenes hilarious. I think that's what the film was going for though, so good job? I'm glad that John ends up being a huge dummy that gets bamboozled by both the girlfriend character and Warwick since John is a terrible jerkbag. He starts off seeming like a character you might root for, but as soon as he starts yelling at Warwick, you're just waiting to see him die. Unfortunately, that death doesn't come, but watching Warwick mess with him is great. The gore in this movie looks good. John does have a bad cut on his foot, but most of the gore is makeup done by Warwick. Yeah, it's weird. Like the plot, the music in this is also strange. 
It's very in-your-face, but I ended up liking the soundtrack a lot. If you are looking for a straight-up horror movie, this isn't for you. If you're looking for a ridiculous comedy that has moments that are so bad they're good, featuring Niles Crane as a crazy lieutenant, check out The Perfect Host. One last thing that needs to be brought up. There is a scene where John wakes up to the view of Warwick going to town on one of his imaginary ladies. It's hilarious. Number 4, Martyrs, 2008, directed by Pascal Luger. A bloodied girl named Lucy is found running outside of a warehouse. She was held captive in terrible conditions. Once she's found, she's kept at a hospital with other young kids. A girl named Anna befriends Lucy. Lucy believes a tortured naked girl is hunting her. Fifteen years later, Lucy shows up at the house of the people who made her suffer when she was a child. She kills the two adults that were responsible for her pain and their children with a shotgun. She calls Anna, who heads to the house. Lucy's then attacked by the tortured naked girl, who disappears once Anna shows up. The mom is still alive. Anna tries to rescue her, since she has doubts that these are the right people, but Lucy ends up finishing the job with a hammer. Lucy is then killed by the tortured naked girl, who only exists in her head. Anna then discovers a hidden basement where a girl has been held captive. Anna frees the girl. A random cultish group shows up and kills the freed girl. They then replace her with Anna. It's explained that they are trying to create a martyr, which to them is someone who overcomes suffering to reach a state of transcendence. Anna suffers and eventually transcends after having her skin removed. An old woman who is a leader of the cult stops by. Anna whispers to her what she had seen in her transcendent state. More old people show up at the house to hear what was said. The old lady cult leader kills herself. Lucy and the martyr cult are the killers. Lucy killed kids who I'm pretty sure were innocent. Well, maybe they knew about everything. She also killed herself, so I'm counting her either way. This movie is butts. It starts off as a revenge film, then ends up being the worst torture porn I've ever seen. 20 minutes of the torture porn is Anna eating slop, receiving bad haircuts, and getting beaten up by a burly, bald dude. We get 20 minutes of this, over and over. When Lucy kills the people who tortured her in the first 30 minutes, I was wondering how they'd fill the rest of the time. That's how. 20 minutes of repetitive garbage. Everything leading up to Anna's capture is entertaining and eerie. Lucy sees and is attacked by the ghost of the girl she left behind when she escaped, and every scene they are in together is cool and spooky. The makeup and movements of the ghost actress make that character incredibly unsettling. The question of how are they going to get out of this murdered family pickle had me enthralled. There is also some serious tension when Anna descends into the hidden torture basement. Then the movie just turns into complete garbage. The whole making a martyr plot is plain old stupid. It's not interesting or enjoyable, and it makes up a solid third of the movie. Before we get to Dum Dum's Suffering Dungeon Special, the movie is pretty entertaining. Being introduced to a family that is instantly taken out by Lucy is an insane way to subvert your normal slow burn revenge film plot. 
Speaking of slow burn revenge films, if you are looking for a good movie that fits that description, check out Blue Ruin. It's fantastic. I want to make sure there is at least one strong recommendation this episode, so I strongly recommend Blue Ruin. Back to farters, I mean martyrs. Unfortunately, the creative take on plot leaves too much time for the movie to swirl down the toilet bowl. The acting in the movie seems pretty good. I liked Lucy's and Anna's performances. Well, at least in the first two-thirds of the movie, I don't think anyone could have acted well during the last third of the film, given the terrible plot. In this scene, you act like you are completely broken and skinless. When Anna is shown with her skin removed, all I could think about was her saying to herself, Yes, yes, one step closer to my final form, a majestic skeleton. She doesn't say that, and she doesn't fully turn into a skeleton, that obviously would have made me recommend this movie wholeheartedly. There's a part in this movie where Anna removes a metal headset from the girl she rescues in the basement that was covering the girl's eyes. I thought this was a bad idea since the character would be blind anyway due to being in total darkness for so long. But after some research, that seems to be a myth. It seems you can have temporary blindness, but you won't turn completely blind like Soul Calibur's Valdo solely from being deprived of light. Thanks for lying to me, Soul Calibur. Martyrs is bad. The sad thing is, it's only bad because of the terrible third act. It makes you feel like you completely wasted your time. Skip this movie. If you decide to watch it, turn it off as soon as the girl Anna rescues is shot. Also, if for some reason you still want to watch it, make sure to watch the original French version. There is a tamer American remake that I hear is even worse than the original. Addendum. What's this? This is new. It's been about a week since I've seen Martyrs, and even though I still think the movie is heavily flawed, it has stayed with me due to its unique plot. Based on its interesting structure, I now give it a very soft recommendation, like Nerf darts would kill it soft. My grievances still stand, but when a movie sticks with me like this, it must be proof that it did some things right. Number 5, The House of the Devil, 2009, directed by Ty West. A girl named Samantha needs to make some money for a down payment on a new place to live. Luckily, she comes across an ad for a babysitter. After some weirdness, she heads to the house for the job with her friend Megan, who's giving her a ride. Once at the house, the man who's been in contact with Samantha, Mr. Ullman, tells her the job is actually more of an old lady sitting and offers oodles of cash for the gig. Samantha says it's cool and stays to do the job, with her friend Megan heatedly leaving. Megan and Samantha agreed they'd both leave if the job had a strange vibe, and Samantha doesn't follow through with their agreement when things do in fact get freaky. Since Samantha decides to stay, Megan drives off and stops at a cemetery to smoke a cigarette and cool off. Some weirdo helps her light the cigarette, then shoots her in the head, after finding out she's not the babysitter. Mr. Ullman goes upstairs to allegedly get his wife. Mrs. Ullman then comes up from the basement. The two eventually leave the house, and Samantha orders a pizza by calling a number Mr. Ullman left on the fridge that he referenced three times. Samantha explores the house, gets the heebie-jeebies, and then eats some pizza that's delivered by the graveyard weirdo. She goes to the attic where some crazy stuff goes down, and then she passes out. She comes to tied to the floor over a pentagram. An evil, monster-faced woman 
performs a ritual on Samantha. Samantha then breaks free and kills the graveyard weirdo who happens to be the Ullman's son and Mrs. Ullman before exiting the house and running to the graveyard. There, Mr. Ullman tells Samantha that they had to perform the ritual on her and that she can't stop it now. Samantha shoots herself in the head. The film ends with her in a hospital bed. A doctor tells her unconscious body, you will be just fine, both of you. The strange demon cult family are the killers. This is the movie I meant to watch instead of House on Willow Street. The House of the Devil is a much better movie. It captures the early 80s horror movie vibe almost perfectly and did so before copying the 80s became the popular thing to do. If you had told me this movie was actually from the early 80s, I probably would have believed you if I hadn't already seen the guy that plays the killer's son in another movie called You're Next. Honestly, I really don't like that guy, A.J. Bowen. He sticks out as someone that shouldn't be there every time I see him in anything. Also, the old guy that plays Mr. Ullman is fine at what he does, but he doesn't strike me as an old man I'd actually see in an 80s movie. 80s old dudes were just different. The House of the Devil doesn't have a ton of crazy action. It is a slow burn movie where the climax happens in the last 10 minutes. The aesthetic and cinematography are great in this, but the movie could have been cut a little shorter. I did really like Samantha's exploration of the giant creepy house, but would have liked her to stumble across some more creepiness. There is a scene where she is about to open a door but hesitates. The audience gets to see what's on the other side, and it's a bunch of dead bodies in a room made up for some fun time satanic rituals. The contents of the room are incredibly unnerving, and the room's reveal is one of the best moments in the film. The gore in this is very well done, especially on the main body in the room. It skewed me out. The other big gore moments are Megan getting her head blown off, which comes out of nowhere, and the son getting his throat slashed by Samantha, which is one of the best throat slash effects I've seen. A running theme throughout the movie is a disregard for pizza, so much pizza is wasted, which makes it surprising that Samantha eats enough of the drug pizza to pass out. Why would you even make a pizza the drug vessel to knock out the soon-to-be star of your ritual? There was no guarantee she would order that pizza and eat it. Make sure to order your own pizza if you decide to watch this, because I guarantee you're going to want one. I'm still not sure how Samantha gets free during the ritual. Her arms and legs were tied down, and the knots just seemed to come completely undone, after Samantha puts the tiniest bit of exertion on them. Who tied those knots? Was it that person's first satanic ritual or what? Complete amateur hour. There's a scene where Night of the Living Dead is playing on TV. This is almost always the horror movie being shown within horror films these days. That's probably because it's in the public domain. The House of the Devil director Ty West also directed a segment in VHS, which I completely forgot about. I might need to rewatch that. In The House of the Devil, Greta Gerwig plays Megan. The whole time I thought she looked really familiar, and that's because she's in one of the worst movies I've ever seen for this podcast, Baghead. She was the best part of that movie, though. Kudos to her for washing the Duplass Brothers' mediocrity off and getting Oscar noms for her writing and directing for Lady Bird. I liked The House of the Devil. The ending is kind of iffy, since if you shoot yourself in the side of a head with a revolver, you're going to die. But hey, 
I don't know the extent of the demonic powers Samantha received after participating in half a ritual. If you like horror movies to be a bit slower, with a lot of aesthetically pleasing stuff for your eyeballs to gaze upon, check out this movie. Number 6, The Wailing, 2016, directed by Na Hong Jin. A police officer named Jong-gu works multiple crime scenes where diseased people have gone crazy and killed friends and family. A woman who ends up being a guardian spirit tells him the disease is being spread by a Japanese man that recently moved to the town. All the clues are leading to the Japanese man being a demon who's responsible for all the death. Jong-gu and some others go to confront the Japanese man where they find Jong-gu's daughter's shoe, but they don't take action against the man at that time. Jong-gu's daughter gets the disease. A shaman is hired to help the daughter. The shaman is allegedly close to killing the Japanese man with a death hex, but is interrupted by Jong-gu after his daughter begs him to stop it. Jong-gu takes his daughter to the hospital, then takes a mob to the Japanese man's house. The Japanese man escapes initially, but ends up being hit by Jong-gu's truck as the mob is leaving. They dispose of the body. The shaman then meets the guardian spirit, who tells the shaman to leave the area. The shaman calls Jong-gu and tells him the guardian spirit is the evil one and his daughter is still possessed. The guardian spirit tells Jong-gu she set a trap to stop the evil, but he doesn't believe her and tries to go save his family, thus destroying the trap. Another man that was Jong-gu's translator has located a cave with the Japanese man inside. The Japanese man is still alive and reveals that he is a demon. Jong-gu gets back to his house. His daughter has already killed his wife and mother-in-law. His daughter then stabs him. The shaman stops by the house and takes pictures of the victims. He then leaves accidentally dropping a box containing photos of people that have died. People possessed by the Japanese demon are the killers. That summary was hard to follow, wasn't it? It was even harder to follow when watching the movie. After the credits rolled, I was incredibly confused and had to watch a video from a Korean YouTube channel, ALZ Fanzeal, to understand everything. There's a scene where the shaman performs a death hex on the Japanese man. While the shaman performs it, you see the Japanese man also perform a ritual. It seems like the shaman's death hex is killing the Japanese man, so it doesn't make sense when the ending reveals they are working together. Allegedly, the shaman was performing a death hex on the guardian spirit since the shaman was being controlled by the Japanese demon. The fact that the demon was in pain at the same time was just a coincidence. This seemed obvious to the Korean YouTube channel, so I'm not sure if there was a translation issue or if you just need to have a basic grasp of Korean folklore to put everything together correctly. Even with the explanation, what is actually shown on screen is a different story. The shaman is doing a death hex and the demon almost dies, but is saved after the death hex is interrupted. The movie would have been way less confusing if they only showed the shaman doing the death hex and didn't cut to shots of the demon in pain. Taking my own confusion out of the equation, this is a very well made movie. Everything is beautifully shot and the acting is good, even though it's a little hammy at times. Jonggu is kind of a goofball and some of the townsfolk are quite the characters, so the ham fits. The gore in this movie is well done and the makeup for the disease skin and demon transformation of the Japanese man look terrific. The movie is incredibly long. It's about 2 hours and 40 minutes. It definitely drags in parts. 
I thought the movie was going to have an ambiguous ending, but then realized it wasn't over. There were 40 minutes left to go. I believe the movie could have been cut down a bit. There are scenes that don't add anything besides more confusion, like the random car sex scene. I thought Jong-gu was cheating on his wife in that scene, but it was his wife. Why even show this if he isn't cheating on his wife? I thought the scene was showing a negative character trait. But it's just a married couple getting down to business in the back of a small car. Pup warning, Jong-gu beats the demon's dog to death. Well, it doesn't die right away, but I'm 99% sure it ends up dying. There are also multiple chicken deaths, and a goat is almost killed during some rituals, but I'd say the dog's whimpers as it's beat off screen are much worse. If you can handle a long movie that has some nice comedic moments, some great spooky imagery, and one segment that makes for a very confusing plot, check out The Wailing. Number 7, Nasty, 2016, directed by Matthew S. Marin. A drag queen named Nasty is revealed to be a serial killer. Nasty is the killer. This is a short film in Austin that was recommended to me by a co-worker named Caleb. After watching Dragula, I feel like a horror film with drag queens could be absolutely fantastic, so my expectations were a little high. This short was Indiegogo'd and raised $5,500. Is it good? Not really, but it has chutzpah, and as an idiot that's also made a short film in Austin, I appreciate it. The acting from everyone is dreadful besides a few of the queens. The best acting and presence came from Alaska of RuPaul's Drag Race fame, whom Kat instantly recognized. She has a brief role as the show MC. The main queen that plays Nasty is alright, but still off, a lot of people on screen sound like they are reading their lines for the first time. There is a daydreaming sequence where Nasty slits another queen's throat in front of everyone and obviously uses the back of a kitchen knife. A third of the movie is basically an entire drag show instead of a horror movie. I think cuts of the show would have been fine, but it's made the focus, which feels weird since Nasty isn't even a part of the show. The big kill scene is fun, a lot of blood is used for it. When Nasty kills the shot boy, her disposable rubber gloves have manicured nails glued on them, which is fantastic. There's a very out of place Dresden Dolls song played for far too long. I guess they got the rights to it and decided it had to be used front and center. I'm a big Dresden Dolls fan, but it didn't fit at all. If you can look past some terrible acting and bad sound design, you can check out Nasty on YouTube. Search for a channel called Drop Dead Dope. There is some fun to be had. Support local filmmaking, you know. Are you feeling possessed? Neither am I. I guess we're lucky to have come out ourselves with all those demons wobbling about. That's it for episode 17. As always, a big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website, which allows it to pop up on all your favorite podcast apps. There's a new show on the network called The Suda Boys that I highly recommend checking out. It's a bunch of jerks chit-chatting about things like ghosts and touching themselves. Never a dull moment listening to them. The show reminds me of a podcast I loved called Sleepy Cast from the Sleepy Cabin Guys, which rarely releases new episodes these days. If you want to laugh out loud, listen to The Suda Boys. If you liked what you heard from this guy... I would be eternally grateful if you left a rating on iTunes. 
Just launch the terrible iTunes podcast app, search for Blank is the Killer, then hit a number of stars. Leave a review too if you are so inclined. Catch the next episode in two weeks on May 6th. One last thing, I've noticed I've gotten a little long-winded when giving movie summaries. If you think I should go into less detail, please holler at your boy. Now, I have to go practice chaos magic.